Hello and welcome to my office. I'm Carrie Lorenz. Thanks for joining me for conversations with fearless leaders from around the world as we discuss the mechanics of high performance, success and failure, and what it takes to achieve more than you ever thought possible. Through the conversation ahead, I hope to challenge, inform, and inspire you to move fearlessly to higher levels of performance, to learn to focus on what you can control, and then go further faster. And that message starts right now. Nate Boyer leads a remarkable life. Nate's belief that anything is possible has served him well throughout his life as a philanthropist, a Green Beret, a college athlete, a professional athlete, and a community leader. Nate's can-do attitude is contagious, and I'm thrilled to share this conversation with you. And I hope you'll find it as inspiring as I do. Nate, welcome to my office. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Where are you calling in from today? Today I'm in uh, a little south of Reno, Nevada. My folks just moved out here a little while ago, and yesterday was my dad's birthday. So came out with my brother and sister and their families and surprised him. And so, yeah, I'm here in uh, right near Mount Rose, if you know the area at all. Oh, how fun. I do. I, uh, I've spent a little time out in that area uh, in my former my former life. So uh, it's a it's a good place to be. Hey, Nate, yeah. for those listeners that are joining us today, can you kind of bring us back a little bit to the start? I covered a little bit of your background in the intro, but I'd love to hear you tell your story from, I don't know, we can go back to when you were a kid and then skip forward 20 years if you want. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, grew up, uh, I grew up mostly in the Bay Area. I was born in, in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. My dad was going to veterinary school at University of Tennessee, and uh, my mom was uh, working out there at Oak Ridge National Lab. She's an environmental engineer. And uh, that's where I was conceived, but we moved to the Bay Area uh, when I was really young, and my dad started working at Golden Gate Fields, and my mom pursued her PhD at uh, Cal Berkeley. So that's where I was mostly raised, in a place called El Cerrito. You know, growing up there... Uh, was sort of sort of a different experience for a lot of people that would eventually join the military just because it was right between Berkeley and Richmond. It's a relatively tough neighborhood. Berkeley, it's like the uh, breeding ground for hippie culture. So <laughs> it was like a very interesting place, especially later in life when you know I did go on to join the military. But yeah, I mean, I, I loved it. I, I had both my parents are still um, incredible people and they were always very supportive of anything I wanted to do and try to do. Of course, I rebelled quite a bit uh, growing up, but yeah, it was it was a it was a pretty I guess pretty normal child childhood experience. I, I would say I was super into sports from a very young age, like four or five years old. I was I would watch entire baseball games on TV, like regular season games, just sitting on the couch. Yeah, which is it could be really yeah. boring to a lot of people, <laughs> but I was I was so into it. I knew I wanted to be a professional athlete when I was a little kid, and you know, I eventually would grow into somebody that wasn't the most talented athlete in the world and not certainly not the biggest, but it was something that I still always, always wanted to do um, much later in life. So, you know, I went through, went through uh, middle school, high school, didn't do very well in school. Um, I could have, I just didn't, I didn't work hard. I didn't know how to work hard. And I just wasn't super driven um, to do that. Maybe because my parents were pretty educated people and they put themselves through, through school and worked their butts off. And I don't know what, what it was, but it just, it wasn't appealing to me at that time in my life to go to college. So when I graduated high school, I moved to San Diego, worked on a fishing boat for a little while, 
studied firefighting. <laughs> I went, took some fire science classes because I thought I wanted to be a firefighter. And uh, eventually moved up to Los Angeles to pursue film and television. It was something that was appealing to me at that time and storytelling uh, I thought was very powerful. I saw a few movies that really spoke to me and it was like, this is what I want to do. And then 9-11 happened and put me on a completely different trajectory for a long time. Uh, I didn't join the military right away. It took uh, still a couple more years uh, before I eventually did, but I started backpacking. I'd save my money up and backpack and travel overseas. That eventually took me to uh, the Darfur, uh, which is a region in Sudan, uh, where there was a, a genocide that had been going on for quite some time. And I wanted to volunteer and help out. I, I flew myself over there and, and did that. And um, it was through that trip that I gained not only my patriotism, but knew that serving my country was going to be the next step for me. So help me understand that, though. So you're you're over in Darfur. You're doing uh, what for for people who maybe haven't traveled very much, or you know, if you're listening in the U.S., haven't traveled outside of the U.S. What kind of perspective did that give you that maybe you didn't understand before you actually left on that trip? A very different one than I expected. I mean, it's a developing country that's been at civil war for a, a long time. Um, Sudan, I mean, Darfur is just the, the region sort of bordering mm -hmm. Sudan and Chad. And when I say genocide, like 300,000 people had been murdered by the time I'd got there. And it was simply because they believed a slightly different religion, different shade of, of, of brown skin. And, you know, the, a lot of those tribes and cultures, just that they just, the, the infighting um, had gone on for a long, long time. You know, I, I just remember reading about it first. I was in the States when I, when I, I came across this Time Magazine article that was entitled the tragedy in Sudan. And I was looking at the, the pictures, you know, this photojournalism article, and they were just incredibly heartbreaking, but also, I don't know. I just, it's like spoke to me like nothing really had before. Like I needed to go be a part of that. And I was reading about how they're understaffed at these refugee camps and I just was compelled to go. And so I called every NGO first, like doctors without borders and child fund and just told them, I'm, Hey, I'm willing to volunteer. I'll fly myself over there however long you need, whatever you need, I, I want to help. And I all got, I got told no by all of them because I didn't have a college degree. I didn't have any special skills. And there was just so much bureaucracy and red tape to even do that. But like you, you, I was, like I said, I was seeing it in the news. And I was reading about how their, <laughs> the, the camps were growing exponentially every day and they didn't have the manpower to maintain it. So I just said, screw it. I'm going either way. And I bought a plane ticket at the AAA in Burbank and just flew over there to Chad, the neighboring country, and then kind of snuck onto a UN flight, flew over to the refugee camps, you know, ended up volunteering there for a couple of months. And, and yeah, the, the perspective I, I gained was, was very different than I expected as well, because just the, the amount of joy that a lot of these people experienced every day who had absolutely nothing, you know, most of those kids had lost their fathers, um, but they were content with, you know, the one meal that they got and having clean water and, you know, an opportunity to kick a soccer ball around for a little bit it was amazing, you know, just to, to not hear people complain about every little thing, <laughs> which is mm -hmm. a very important thing. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm just as guilty as anybody uh, was, was, it was incredible. And it made me want to fight for people like that. And, and uh, the last week I was there, I got malaria and this family put me up in their, in the mud hut and, like wouldn't let me give them anything. I didn't have much to give, but I had something. I tried to offer them to take it. 
and they're nursing me back to health and they put this little radio by the bed and the only station that it got was the BBC. So I turned it on and, and was just, you know, sweating bullets and freezing cold at the same time. I couldn't eat. It was, it was bad, but, uh, I, I was sort of in a, I think I was kind of in a, tra- in a trance too, because I'm like listening to the second battle of Fallujah and I could like picture myself there. And, and I just, for some reason knew in that moment, when I came back to the States, that's what I was going to do. I was going to join the military. Listening to that battle, it was the, the Marines were the main effort. Mm-hmm. I didn't join the Marine Corps, but I came back and learned about the Army Special Forces and De Oppresso Liber, uh, our motto, which means to free the oppressed, really spoke to me. And so I just made up my mind that I was going to at least try to be a Green Beret. And uh, the main mission with that is foreign internal defense, where we're you know fighting alongside living with training and, and uh, becoming brothers with Afghans and Iraqis. And that, that also spoke to me quite a bit. So I, yeah, that, that's what I set out to do. And, you know, I enlisted and, and went off to basic training. So what was that process like? Because I think too often, you know, we hear these, uh, these stories of people's journeys of, of maybe being a special forces operator or doing something that feels so elusive or so out of reach or like we mere mortals. So what's that process like? Because you didn't just join the army, you became a Green Beret, which is pretty special. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, as far as the process for joining, you take you know a number of tests. I mean, we know how unselective sometimes the military can be. So they- uh, <laughs> That was they, delicate. <laughs> yeah, they wanted me in first and yeah, foremost. Yeah, right. <laughs> because most of the people that get that contract you know, it, it lures, it lures quite a people, quite a few people in. And then, you know, 90% of us uh, that had that, that uh, 18 x-ray contract, like I had that you can keep coming off the street, you know, and you go basic training, airborne school straight into pre-selection and then special forces selection, like 90% of them don't finish. And mm-hmm. so, but they go to the infantry or the needs of the army and, and there's quite a few needs. So it was a, it was a good recruiting tool. Yeah. But once I went in, I think the biggest change for me was honestly through basic training, which is the lowest level of training you're going to get compared to the rest of the stuff you're going to do. But it definitely whipped me into to shape more mentally than physically. But I, I was driven because I, I'm i not the quitting type. And I knew that if I just applied myself that I might not make it, but it wasn't going to be up to me. It was going to be up to the universe, whether I didn't make it or not, you know. I committed to that, like just in basic training alone. I remember um, every time I went to chow, for instance, before and after I did like X number of push-ups, sit-ups and pull-ups. If we had any free time uh, at all, I would like put my body armor on and go to the track outside of the barracks and just like one day I did like a mile of lunges, which was insane and it, it was terrible. An eighth of a mile into it, I could barely walk, but I just kept going and I kept going and kept going because um, I wanted to just, I wanted to complete tasks I wasn't sure that I could do. Do you know what I mean? I, I wanted to mm-hmm. um, set the bar high, higher than I thought was possible. And then if I could get through those things, not only did I start to gain faith in, in what my physical body was capable of, but I knew that I just mentally, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give up. And so, yeah, that, that's, that's how I started to toughen up. And I completely changed the way that I looked and felt about myself just in those 14 weeks. And, uh, and then went off to, to airborne school and pre-selection and, and did really well. I was definitely not the smartest guy. 
Uh, a lot of times I just went 100 miles an hour in the wrong direction, but I always went 100 <laughs> miles an hour. So, uh, With enthusiasm. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But yeah, no, it's incredibly hard. It's incredibly challenging. And, you know, it's, it's a year and a half to two years uh, before you mm-hmm. have the opportunity to deploy and do your job. And that entire time, it's very fun. Some of the fondest memories I'll ever have were in that time, but it's also miserable. <laughs> and uh, every day, you, a, a little bit of you wants to quit every day, sometimes a lot of you. So then you end up you end up making it through and you deploy several times to some pretty hostile regions around the world, uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, you spent some time uh, over in the Pacific region as well. And then it was time for a next chapter. So where where did you go? How did how did you transition out of that? I was actually in, in Iraq uh, in 2009 when I made the decision to go to college, finally. <laughs> not only go to college, I wanted to do um, something that I had regretted for a long time not doing. It's a silly thing. It sounds like a silly thing anyway, but it wasn't silly to me. Playing football. When I was a kid, I played almost every sport you could imagine, you know, soccer, baseball, basketball, but I never played football. And it was always my favorite sport. When I was four and five years old, I was Joe Montana for Halloween two years in a row. I grew up in the Bay Area during the 49ers dynasty years. They won four Super Bowls when I was a kid. So that was just something I always wanted to do. And when I was really young, my mom didn't want me to play. She denies it to this day, but it's true. And because my dad played, he wrestled and played football and had had some injuries and stuff like that. Mm. So, mm-hmm. but when I was old enough to play, if I wanted to, uh, I just didn't have the confidence. You know, I thought like, well, what if I get cut or what if I make the team and I ride the bench? I, I, I don't know if I can handle that. You know, people will make fun of me or whatever, just worried about what everyone else thought. And so I didn't do it. And I just was like, I need to stick with baseball and basketball because this is what I know. And uh, and it bothered me. It bothered me then and it bothered me when I was 29 years old. So I, I just said, you know what, wherever I go, I'm going to just try out for the football team. And I started training when I was in Iraq. I was like, <laughs> I was like YouTubing and, and Googling, you know, how to backpedal and how to run routes and all that kind of stuff. And I started lifting differently and trying to put on some weight. And uh the reason I chose Texas was that Longhorn <laughs> logo you see more than any other college logo uh, in the military, at least in the army. Um, mm-hmm. You see it hanging in, in barracks, you know, I, I saw it on ball caps. I mean, even uh, if you watch American Sniper, Chris Kyle wears that Longhorn hat, you know, and he used to wear that all the time. It, it is a, it is a very, it's the most common one. People will argue that, but they're wrong. Hey, <laughs> I'm, I'm a Badger. I'm a Badger alum. Okay, and okay. I'm a Green Bay Packer owner. So I'll, I'll allow you this because it's a pretty fabulous story. But go ahead. Go ahead. It's I think true. Badgers have made their way around the world the as well. Are, but, you know, whatever. We're just going to have to agree to disagree on that. And, and I'll, I'll support you. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Yeah. So after seeing that, and I mean, I grew up not liking Texas. I Because they're, they're in those legendary <laughs> programs. When I was a little, sure. really little kid, I was a big Notre Dame fan. Mm. I even remember the the Texas USC national championship game. I pulled for USC because I was from California and I'm not a USC fan by any means, but <laughs> I wasn't going to pull for Texas. But you're not going to cheer for Texas, right? No, yeah, no. Well, you know, not until I went, but right. Uh, I came back to the States. I, I was thinking about Texas. I looked up some of their programs and then obviously they had the most, you know, his, historic football program ever. And uh, Mac Brown was a head coach and he had just gotten back from 
like a USO trip over to Iraq. And all these things were just lining up. And so I went out to Austin and uh, just being there, you know, for a week or so, not even that, a few days, I just knew this was the right place for me to go mm -hmm. to school. And uh, so I, it's the only place I applied. Luckily, I got in. That would have sucked. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I got into Texas. And, and uh, after I, I had one more trip to Israel, uh, like a JSET training mission that we had out there with the Israeli special forces. After that was over, uh, I tra started transitioning out and, you know, went off to Austin to start college. So you just show up. You are well armed with your YouTube knowledge, your fitness, and just a commitment to give it a go. So you just show up, and, and again, I'm, I'm pretty familiar. I was a, a D1 rower at the University of Wisconsin. I've got friends who still coach in a variety of sports, and it's fascinating what the opportunities are for walk-ons if somebody is brave enough and prepared enough to show up. Uh, J.J. Watt, right? You may have heard yeah. of him spent a little yeah, time but... down there in Texas. He had a pretty colorful, colorful path onto the football field as well. So you show up just what full tank of gas, bag of knots, let's go. Yeah. I mean, I was 10 years older than the other freshmen and about half as athletic, but <laughs> I did have good endurance and I was, yeah, I had, a, I had the right mentality. I think I, I didn't know what position I was going to play. Like I said, because of my size, it narrowed it down quite a bit and it's like i'm going to be a slot receiver a defensive back and that's about How, it for, for those people who don't know this nate give us your physical stats well i say i'm 5'11 but i'm not i'm like 5'10 and <laughs> half. uh and sure. i'm wait i wait when i got there when i got out of the military i was probably a, maybe 170 pounds 175. Mm. i got up to like 195 in college at the most but not not a big that's not a big football player that's a sure. football player yeah and I'm not very fast. So, I mean, that would have been great if I was that size and fast, but I'm quick-ish, but not really. Not compared to those guys. I couldn't keep up with those kids. They were, you know, insane athletes. So uh, I, I ended up being a safety. I figured that was my best chance of getting on the field, at least on special teams. And so I kind of put everything into that after that first season. I, you know, I got to run down on kickoff coverage when we were blowing out Texas Tech on Veterans Day. So it's like they had to put me in. And, right. uh, and I didn't yeah. want to play garbage time. I wanted to play meaningful snaps. So I had to identify a job on the field, a thankless job <laughs> that wasn't necessarily easy to do. And uh, fortunately, I discovered long snapping, something that I didn't really know existed when I got to Texas. Uh, so for those that don't know, the long snapper uh, on punts, field goals, and extra points, he's the one who snaps it longer than if you were snapping it to the quarterback. It's about eight yards on field goals and extra points, and it's about 15 yards on punts. The most important part of that job is consistency, mm -hmm. accuracy, and just getting in the way and doing your job. You know, if you can get it to the punter in a good spot and the kick doesn't get blocked, you win as far as a long snapper. Like, you don't need to make a bunch of tackles. You don't need to be making all these great plays over the field. You just need to not screw up. Yeah, um, it's crazy because it is one of those positions that, and again, for those not familiar with football, I would say I would characterize it as it's pretty unglamorous. You know, there's not like, not like the long snapper calendar that people like go for, but it is one of those super unique positions that it's, it is like similar to being a kicker. You've got like one shot or maybe two or three shots during a game and you can't mess it up. And it's always under pressure. 
So you, and you've got these gigantor guys, you know, coming down to crush you, crush the life out of you. And you have to get it right every time or nobody else can do their job. So that ability to focus under pressure, to just control what you can control and stay cool as a cucumber in that position from a team perspective is critical. Well, it's like a sniper and you know, everybody wants to give the sniper all the credit, but like usually the one with the better eyes, the better sniper of the two is the spotter, but he's not the spotter, through, you know, that's right. So it's a similar right. type of similar type of situation, mm -hmm. but yeah, you're right. I mean, there was, I remember certain games that no one will ever remember this play or care about it, but it's like, we're, we're backed up, you know, next to our own end zone and we're up by two with like a minute left and we're punting. So it's like, we can't give them good field position because they'll be in field goal range or whatever, you know, and I bend down, look through my legs. I know the guys on the line from Kansas state across this, the other side of the ball are coming full head of steam, trying to block this thing. I'm, I'm definitely nervous, you know, just because I was in the military doesn't mean I'm not nervous in those moments, but it's like you mm -hmm. have to focus and execute mm -hmm. and just like aim small, miss small, just like you were shooting a gun and you have to perform. So do you, is there anything, and not to, not to sound cheesy on this, but, but so often people want to know what's going on inside of people who are high performers. What's the narrative? What's the soundtrack? Is there a mantra? Is there, what are you thinking or are you not really, and have you just prepared so relentlessly that it's become reflexive? Or do you actually have something that you tell yourself in those moments of stress and duress and overwhelm that gets you through to the next minute, the next five minutes, the next 10 minutes? I definitely have, I don't even, I couldn't even tell you what those mantras were. Like on the sideline, mm -hmm. when you know you're coming up next, you know, like, you know, we're going to be kicking a, a field goal or, or punting or something's happening. Like, there's definitely positive self-talk. And also I remember, <laughs> so kickers are total head cases, kickers and punters. <laughs> so part of my job as given to me from the coaches was make sure these guys are not freaking out on the sidelines. Mm -hmm. so, so if I have to focus on calming somebody else down, it helps me stay calm because I can't mm -hmm. get in my own head. Yeah. Brings you yeah. outside of yourself. Yeah. So I would do that. And then once we ran out on the field, I would definitely feel those nerves of like, you know, you got that little voice in your head saying, oh God, don't screw this up. Don't blah, 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 blah. But once I got standing over the ball, it was just like such a routine. The way that I, I would like tap my left foot twice on the toe on my toe before I planted that one. And then I don't even remember. I couldn't even tell you what mm -hmm. the whole routine was, but it was very specific. Just like when somebody's shooting a free throw, if you watch a basketball player, mm -hmm. they do the exact same thing every time. Yeah. Like Steph Curry always pops his mouth guard out and like, it's like, she's like chewing on his mouth guard. And it's like, that's what calms him. So I would have those little those little things and I would grip the ball and I would find my target and I'm hearing the the snap count start to be called. Yeah, at that time I just remember like I'd put my hands on the ball and if it took longer than normal, I would like do this. <laughs> it would just like help everybody. Like tap stay the relaxed. tap the laces. Yeah, just kind of like yeah. not not squeeze the ball or like try to grip it too much. Mm -hmm. Just try to like relax and and then once the well, as soon as I hear that snap count, I just your body becomes mechanical. Um, it's almost like a, a dog that's ready to go pounce a bird. And as soon as the owner, you know, says, go get it or whatever, how quickly that dog just like fires out of there. It was the same type of thing uh, with that. So with all those things going on and, and knowing that I have like specific jobs to do and I got more things to do, it helped me tune out the crowd, tune out the moment and just focus on like the little details. You know, when I look through my legs and I, I find a spot, like if we were kicking a field goal, 
I remember our holder would plant his 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 hand down on the ground, his one his left hand, and then he would put his right hand out when we were ready to you know ready to snap it. So I'd I'd snap it to him, but I would just stare. I'd see that in my periphery, but I would stare at this little Nike check on the top of his glove, and I would just like hone in on that, and that's all I saw. And if I looked at anything else or let anything else distract me, you know maybe it wouldn't be the best snap, but because I just did that, it would just it was it was. It was the same almost every time. <laughs> it was mm-hmm. the same result. You know what I mean? Because uh, your your body becomes so mechanical, uh, and it, and it's incredible how much it follows the mind. If the mind believes that everything's okay, like the body usually continues on. Well, did you find in your time there? So you had a you had a really successful career at Texas. I mean, you didn't just walk on and <laughs> yeah, snap a couple of balls, do a do a cheerleader wave to the crowd, and tip your hat. I mean, pretty much. Pretty much all I did. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> no, you had a you had a legendary career there. So you're leaving Texas and you end up getting drafted by the Seattle Seahawks. Did they know about your YouTube background? <laughs> or did they know who you were? Well, they knew about the military stuff, of course. And they knew, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I started for three years at Texas. So that helped. Just starting at Texas is a big deal generally. So yeah. that definitely helped this opportunity. I think also, you know, while I was in school, I, I still, I still was, I was in the Texas National Guard while I was in college. So every summer I would go, I would go to Afghanistan for about three and a half months and redeploy with the special forces. And so I think those parts of the story, because I got, inter- I got, I interviewed with a few teams after college was over and that was some of the most appealing stuff. It's like long snapping, long snappers generally, like we're not that different as long as you can consistently do it. It's not like the difference between Tom Brady and a typical quarterback. Like long snappers are pretty much, for the most part, all the same. You know what I mean? There's not, there's not usually long snappers that are just head and shoulders above other ones. For them, a lot of it was the story, you know, what they would view as someone they'd want in their locker room as a leader. Mm-hmm. Um, the biggest things going against me were my size and my age. I was 34 years old at the time. And so when the Seahawks did give me that opportunity I was a rookie, but I was also the oldest guy on the team, <laughs> which is strange. So, you know, they brought me out there and Pete Carroll is the coach and Pete was awesome. I mean, he straight up, when he called me and said that the Seahawks wanted to sign me, he said, I just want you to know first and foremost, like, it's going to be really hard for you to make this team. <laughs> you know, it's going to be very, very hard. And I was like, I know that coach. He's like, no, I, I really want you to understand that because He's like, you, you, you can snap. And he's like, we, we, we watched the tape. We watched your pro day. We understand that. He's like, but you're small and you're old. <laughs> and he's like, I like guys with a chip on their shoulder though. And I know yeah. you have that. And so, you got to yeah. appreciate the transparency. Yeah, no, I know. Right? I, I did. Yeah. I did. I got, yeah. I actually got offered, uh, I, I was offered to sign with the St. Louis Rams as well. And no knock on the St. Louis Rams, but I think because of the way that, because of what Pete said there and it didn't mm-hmm. feel like, for them, they didn't need any kind of positive press. They went to back-to-back Super Bowls, you know, and like they were America's team at the time. Like everybody loved the Seahawks. Well, unless you hated the Seahawks because they beat you. Um, yeah, I grew up a Niner fan, so I am rivals with the Seahawks. You're a Packer fan. I mean, come on. That was I pretty- know, right? But Russell Wilson's there. So now I'm like, well, as long as they're not playing the Packers, I'll cheer exactly. for them. Exactly. And, and I like the way I like the way they run their team. They, they yeah, run a pretty no, disciplined outfit, was, so yeah. It's a special place. Like I've, I've never yeah. played anywhere else, but I've been in plenty of other locker rooms and it's it's a different culture there. You know, the way Pete does it is 
is pretty special. You know, it, it, he kind of brings that college competitiveness and the fun in the locker room that's definitely needed. It feels less like a business than than most places in the NFL. So, yeah, so that was that was an incredible opportunity. I mean, ultimately, I didn't make the team. You know, I played in the preseason and went through training camp and OTAs, and um, I don't regret any of it. But it was it was hard. He wasn't lying. <laughs> so. That That is a bit of an asterisk, but where I would like to go back to, though, for just a second, is that I find it fascinating, and I, I wonder how when you, and, you know, having been in the military, and I, you know, have a family of service lots of time, you know, whether it's in Vietnam or in, in our current situations that we find ourselves in, that you were able to straddle deploying and being forward deployed in theater operationally and be going back and forth to Texas to play at a collegiate level. That is such an extreme mindset, culture, a physical shift that how are you able to straddle both of those worlds and not lose your sense of self or even become resentful when you came back and you see everybody hitting up nickel beer night and, and again, you know, complaining about the mundanities, if you will, of college life, whether it's, oh, I have a paper due or whatever, when you're like, dude, I was just in Fallujah or Afghanistan. How did you, how did you handle that psychologically? I mean, you should know that the military community, we complain as much as anybody else. <laughs> we do something about it often, but we, we definitely, we bitch. And so, I would say there was so many more similarities than there were differences. Like, I think the mutual respect between both was very mm -hmm. prevalent. A lot of these, a lot of these these guys I went to college with and played football with were very respectful of the military. That that thought that was a, a pretty incredible thing to do. And um, and then on the flip of that, when I was deployed, like I can't tell you how many people in the military just wanted to talk about Texas football. You know, because it was an oh, escape yeah, yeah, for them. Yeah. There was a lot of those similarities. Of course, like the mission is completely different. The comfort, <laughs> you know, it's very sure. comfortable going to a place like like UT and and uh, and, and playing football, and it's, it's a pretty first class experience as far as that goes. Yeah, going to Afghanistan is very different, <laughs> but I, I don't know. I kind of liked. I, I kind of liked. It. I loved it. Um, for me, like they were both a break from the other thing, uh, and the other thing that I enjoy quite a bit. But I really embrace uh, change. Uh, and I, I like variety. I like, I like when things are different. I like to be surprised and I like to just constantly be on the move. And so it suited that during the summer in Austin, it, it's very humid. School's mm -hmm. out of session. You know, we're doing summer workouts with the football team, but you're not, you can't practice like with coaches and all that. So I was like, well, I can do all those things while I'm deployed. You know, I'm still going to work out and, and do everything I need to do. And I just have this opportunity to do something that I love. Um, it's, it's just a different summer internship experience than most college <laughs> students would have. It was great. And I, I was very lucky to have it set up in the sense of, um, so Admiral McRaven was the SOCOM commander at the time and he went to Texas. So, oh, sure, you know, sure. Yeah, he made sure I was back the day before training camp, uh, both, both years that I went to Afghanistan before my junior and senior year. And so he, he sort of coordinated that. And then he eventually came uh, to be the, the chancellor of, uh, mm -hmm. UT, mm -hmm. uh, of the entire UT system. So yeah, it was, uh, it was sort of a perfect uh, situation uh, for, for me to be able to still live in both of those worlds. 
So you're stepping out of your Seahawk experience then. And if you look back kind of historically, all of these different, and they're very different chapters of, of your life, if you will. You go from kind of scrambling, trying to figure out what am I gonna do with my life? You've got two amazing parents, highly educated, who've set an extraordinarily high bar, but now you've put yourself, you've worked yourself into these roles where in order to not only survive, but contribute, it's based on a really strong sense of purpose. So you're leaving the Seahawks and you have to be thinking what's next. Or did you already have a plan for what was next? Uh, I didn't have too much of a plan. I knew I was still interested in film and television. That was something I wanted mm -hmm. to circle back on, you know, something that uh, I assumed would be sort of the next chapter. But to be honest, like right when I got cut, my initial thought was like going back into the military, <laughs> you know, sort of first. And it wasn't right for me anymore. Uh, not in the sense mm -hmm. of like grown apart, but it was just, I was ready to move on. and you know, part of me just was afraid to maybe. So I considered that I'd met a guy named Jay Glazer by that time, you know, he's a, a Fox NFL Sunday uh, analyst and someone that helped train me when I was getting ready for that shot at the NFL. And he was like, let's not do that. Let's not dive into that. Um, let's, let's think about it. Maybe there's something you can do after service and after playing that involves mm -hmm. you know, veterans and athletes. And also at the same time, I got a phone call, actually the day after I got cut, I got a phone call from Chris Long. Chris, for those that don't know, he's a, he won a couple of Super Bowls with the Patriots and the Eagles. His dad is Howie Long. Chris is a defensive end. I think he played for 11 or 12 years. He has a charity called Water Boys. It's a clean water project in East Africa. Uh, and he's utilized his platform and other NFL players and, and players from other sports that raise money for solar powered, fully sustainable, clean water wells to be dug starting in Tanzania. And Chris reached out to me and said, man, I've been following your story. Sorry to hear you got cut, but <laughs> uh, this is what I'm working on. And the part of your story that was most inspiring to me was when you went to Darfur, would you be interested in kind of partnering up and, you know, and doing something uh, with uh, water boys? And so I had this going on and then I had Jay thinking of what, what can we do to bring athletes and, uh, and veterans together to help them find purpose and identity when the uniform comes off. So I had these, this great sort of moment right there where it was a, a way to keep serving, a way to keep doing something challenging that all came together. So I started MVP with J, which stands for Merging Vets and Players. And I started a, uh, or with Chris, I, I helped to form a, an initiative within Water Boys called Conquering Killy, where we go with NFL players and uh, veterans to go climb Mount Kilimanjaro every year and raise money for water wells. So we've got the water water project going on and then and then MVP. That was exactly what what I needed for me, but also, mm -hmm. you know, it felt uh felt like I was utilizing everything that I'd accomplished and the skills that I'd been taught to keep fighting for something. So it's it's a blend of finding that challenge again and that purpose and the what's next. Well, I think that's one of the things that I found fascinating, and I'm sure you're familiar with Jake Wood as well yeah. of uh, mm -hmm. Team Rubicon, right? That you find these individuals who yourself, Jake, uh, Paul Rykoff has done an amazing job with IEVA and that realize that there's this gap or there's this, this unmet need, regardless of, of different programs that the military might try to be uh, providing to service members who are leaving, 
that a couple of different things that I, that I see. And I, you know, I'm obviously curious to hear your take on this. I don't think we still are addressing from a military perspective and a leadership perspective that we're operating in these environments that, you know, people have to be able to compartmentalize. They have to be able to work hard. They have to be able to set aside emotion in order to be able to get the job done, whether you're in a conflict zone or you're just working in a really high operational tempo area. And then yet at the same time, part of that skill set, if you haven't had the discussion around what it means to be vulnerable, what it means to actually feel the feelings, which then people are like, oh, here comes the crystal rocks and touchy feely velvet hammer discussion, right? That you can't neglect that one whole side of a person and think you're going to leave a person intact and right. whole. And what I am still seeing missing, and for for a number of years, even I do a lot of strategic planning, a ton of keynotes, I will ask people in Q&A when they want to talk about resiliency or tenacity or even ask about the military, I'll ask people if they've ever heard of PTSG or PTG. And in a decade, I think only one or two hands have come up. It's the other half of PTSD. And it's it's the other half of the discussion of resiliency that that with understanding, with action, with refueling that purpose, you can move through a really difficult time in your life and actually be stronger for having had that happen than it not happening. And what I love what you and Jay are building with MVP is that you're giving people, you're combining these high performers, these people that oftentimes have egos, right? And you're putting them in a place that they can be vulnerable. They can talk about what the struggles are and even share a path forward. How are you finding that in the, in the time that you've started doing this? Are you seeing that get better? Or do you think that that's still a huge blind spot from a leadership perspective? And I'm not throwing the military under the, under the truck right now on this, okay? I look at this as an opportunity for engagement and for helping our people rather than saying you're broken and here's what it is. Good luck. Yeah, I think, uh, I think it is the conversation at least is developing and getting better, you know? Um, yeah. Post-traumatic growth is something that I understand because I'm aware personally that I wouldn't have achieved half the things I achieved if I didn't have a great amount of failure or loss in some way, mm -hmm. you know, you know, I think one of the bigger issues <laughs> that a lot of us face as, uh, as veterans and, and athletes is this, this, uh, you know, like a lack of traumatic stress, you know, missing sort of that high octane lifestyle where it's like things are, well, at least in the military, things are life and death and, you know, the stakes are very, very high, you know, but also, yeah, like it's, I mean, I, I was speaking about this with somebody yesterday, you know, when we talk about post-traumatic stress, like it is interesting to me that, 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 that it is called a disorder, you know, because, you know, for what you're experiencing, and what you're going through, if you didn't have some reaction to that and maybe even a, a negative one, you know, quote unquote, mm -hmm. uh, that's not normal. Like it'd, it'd be very mm -hmm. odd for somebody to, you know, experience death at that level and not, uh, and not have it affect them, you know, in the, in the, in the form of, you know, of, of, of dreams or flashbacks or, or sounds that sort of make you jump or whatever you want to call it. That's a very normal thing. You know, that is like, that's what should happen. Um, that's right. 
Yeah. We're talking about that more now. And like, you know, it's it's just a matter of like processing it and understanding it and like being okay with it and knowing that this is totally normal. Not, not that you have a disorder because you're acting in this manner. And that's where I do think I remember, um, it was 2013 and general Mattis, United States Marine Corps brought it up in an interview that he did. And I was like, Oh, finally, we're going to have the conversation on a national level about this. And then it was almost like it disappeared and, and we're too worried about pharmacology and, you know, you're broken, you're broken or, um, and instead of giving people the tools and even the language and having people like you who are very high profile, who have a, and please don't take this as a, as a trite summation, you look like an action figure, chiseled jaw cut. And you're like, well, clearly he can handle it because he's built different. But at the normal people level, i.e. the rest of us, we aren't having the conversations telling people it is normal. This is normal. This doesn't mean you're less masculine. It doesn't mean you're less successful to have, you know, five years, seven years, 10 years later, 14 years later, when you're out having a scotch or a cigar or whatever with your friends and somebody starts telling the stories of can you know remember when we were in xyz it's normal if your teeth start chattering that's normal that doesn't mean you're broken but because i think we've put people in this place of brokenness that they forever in this shame spiral of feeling like am i ever going to be enough again am i ever going to be able to get through or get to the other side where i feel okay so you the work that you're doing right now with MVP, you and Jay and the teams that you're building, I think is just going to be transformative on so many different levels. I, you know, Nate, not to try to oversell it. I think it ends, this could end up being your legacy, your life's work. I think it's that important. Well, I appreciate that. You know, I think, I think the athlete community has really helped change the narrative. And I think that they, because of the platform that they have, Mm-hmm. Uh, the more that they continue to speak up on it and sort of normalize, you know, what we call mental health issues, where to me, they're not necessarily issues like feeling emotions and experiencing them and not trying to run from them or put them in boxes or, or label them as bad things because they're considered negative, you know, like being angry mm-hmm. or being sad or mm-hmm. uh, depression or whatever. Um, like people like Kevin Love, you know, and, and he's spoken out on that uh, quite a bit. People like Brandon Marshall in the NFL. Uh, a lot of these these athletes that young kids look up to because uh, that's how it's going to change like generation mm-hmm. generationally you know mm-hmm. we need to not it's it's and it's like a fine line because we don't need to live in a world where everybody's just you know constantly talking about their how what they're feeling yeah um, yeah yeah but when you're struggling like you need to feel comfortable and you should feel empowered to share that with somebody and you should talk about it it makes you feel better i mean if you don't mm-hmm. deal with it if you just ignore it it's not going to go away. It doesn't work like that. It does not work like that. And I think where, again, where you are, uh, you all are providing such a great platform is it is the, it's the blend that whether you know it or not is actually based on great science. And something that I advocate for all the time is that action conquers fear and that you actually have to take action to get through something that is your bottleneck, your choke point, your, you know, your cross to bear. And it's only by taking action or doing something in service of other people that I think gets you more grounded 
and helps you find solutions, right? So it's not that we're all going to sit around and kumbaya and talk something to death and we're going to come out and we're just going to be super chill and relaxed because I think that kind of motivational BS sets people up to fail. I really do. It's because then you're scrolling Instagram or whatever. And you're like, well, I don't feel like that. Yeah. Right. How do I feel like that? Yeah. That's a, that's a tough one. I mean, the social media stuff, it's like, there's a lot of good that comes with it and a lot of connectivity, but you know, it's also, most of it's not real. <laughs> it's not, <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, it's tough. Like no, who wants to post that? Who wants to put pictures of them, you know, struggling? And like, that's kind of a, that's an odd thing. Like, I, I don't know how I would react to that, you know, but, but it, it is interesting how even when we know deep down, this, this is not real. Like you, you see these things and, and it, it does elicit a bit of an emotion or a reaction and, you know, wondering what you need to be doing differently to, to, to feel that way or look that way or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. It's just not, it's not the truth. It's not what, you know, what is real. And uh, yeah. And, and of all years, I mean, this last one has definitely been, I think at least socially, probably the most challenging for us uh, because of the isolation, because of, you know, politics and where, mm-hmm. <laughs> what they've been uh, doing to us over the last several years and, you know, the division and all this stuff. So, but I'm hopeful, uh, at this point, you know, I'm hopeful for uh, the present and the future and these continued conversations, people being vulnerable, being open, especially those uh, in leadership and those, you know, with with uh, with a voice that have a lot of people that follow them um, mm-hmm. to, to just be be genuine. And, you know, if you're if you're if you're hurting, if you're not doing well, like just let people know, you know, let people know. Yeah. And, and, and we need to, to normalize this uh, so it's so people understand it is part of life, you know, feeling sad, feeling empty, feeling worthless and purposeless. Like everybody feels that at some point and at some level, you know, and uh, and it's not a bad thing. It's just part of the human experience. You know, you have to embrace it. Uh, you don't want to sit in it forever, but, yep. you know, yep. sit, sitting with it for for a short period of time is not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, no, I agree. I know even personally, there have been, uh, you know, obviously some, some really, uh, devastating things in my past. I'm old enough to have had a couple of those experiences. And one of the things that I try to tell myself to do is if it's really devastating, I'm like, okay, you have 24 hours, you have 24 hours to feel sorry for yourself, (laughs) 24 hours to mope and think it's not fair and then go, all right, so what are we going to do about it? Right. And it's, it's actively intentionally clicking over, changing the narrative, even that's running through your head of being solutions oriented, or even in conversations, you know, as, as you've said, even just in this last year, it's been really hard. I think for a lot of families, a lot of individuals, maybe not brought out the best in a lot of people and maybe just take a step back and, and, you know, instead of firing back on an opinion of something, you could start with, help me understand, help yeah. me understand how that makes you feel that way instead of you're wrong or that's BS or whatever. Just, just help me understand and yeah. go from there. We definitely have an obsession in America with being right and winning, you know, and it brought mm-hmm. us uh, a lot of good things, I think, because mm-hmm. we're competitive at the same time, it's detrimental uh, often. And, uh, and we get stuck in that. I get stuck in that. I mean, we all do. But it's just this, I think it's this understanding that 
you know, pain is pain and, and everybody has shit in their life. And it's a choice you have to make whether to you know, let the stench overwhelm you or to turn it into fertilizer. And that's part of that post-traumatic growth that you were speaking on earlier. You know, what are you going to do with the pain that you have? Yeah. Because, you know, it, it's not all bad. To be fair, as you well know, that's not dismissing it. It's acknowledging it and then saying yes and. It's okay, what's next? We know that's a bad situation. So what's next? But Nate, I'm just, I'm such a super fan of you. Uh, I'd say I'm a fangirl, but you know, I'm probably too old for that. Uh, but you're doing, you're doing such amazing work. Uh, if there's anything I can ever do to support you, please let me know. Um, so I'm going to transition into some easy questions for you. Okay. We'll call them, we'll call them rapid fire questions. Uh, no wrong answers, just kind of something to end as we like to do on a high note. All right. What's your go-to music when you work out? Pearl Jam. Okay, who do you think of as a mentor and what did you need to learn from them? Uh, my dad and I, what did I need? Uh, I needed to listen earlier. <laughs> <laughs> can, can he hear you? Is his head gonna pop up in, in the no. kitchen doorway? <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Make sure you tell him that if he doesn't listen to this, he'll be, he'll be glad to hear that. That's a good birthday present. Um, oh. Golly, this is going to be a trick question. Who plays you in a movie? Chris Pratt. Oh, God. Yeah, I don't know. Do you think he's up to the challenge? No. You think he could do you? <laughs> nah, I don't think so either. Sorry, Chris. I mean, he's pretty good, but is is he Nate Boyer good? Okay, maybe Denzel. <laughs> okay. All right, we have $100 and a full tank of gas and the day off. Where are we going? Where are you and I going? Uh, that's a really hard question. I have no idea. Sorry. <laughs> nowhere fast, apparently. Nowhere, nowhere fast. How about um, how about you call Pete Carroll? I'll call some of my friends in Seattle, and and we hit up a Seahawks game. And you can wear your Niners jersey, and I'll wear a Packers jersey, and uh, people will probably be nice to us. That's a horrible idea. But I'm down. I'm down to That's Seattle. a horrible idea. <laughs> that is a horrible idea. Um, all right, Nate, if, if people want to get in touch with you or follow you um, on your journey and certainly on your MVP journey, where can they do that? For MVP, go to vetsandplayers.org. Uh, I do have a website, nateboyer.com, if you want to check anything out there. And then on social media, at nateboyer37. Awesome. Nate, you have been a dream. Uh, thank you so much for carving out time. I know you're spending it with your family, so this means a lot to me and it's been a pleasure. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you so much, Carrie. Appreciate it. You bet. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Welcome to My Office. If you enjoy the show, make sure you take a second to subscribe so you know automatically when my new shows drop. Also, if you enjoyed the conversation today with Nate, I'd love if you left us a review so that more fearless leaders like you can discover us. It takes less than 60 seconds and it really makes a difference. And I also love reading the reviews. And finally, my new book launches June 1st and you can pre-order Span of Control at carrielorenz.com for exclusive goodies and resources you'll receive today.